Hello, and welcome to another edition of Globalocity Radio. I'm Doris Nagel, CEO of Globalocity. We're experienced sales growth consultants focused on helping companies with their indirect sales channel strategies and implementation, international expansion, and effective partnering. We are passionate about helping companies be more successful, and our approach is decidedly hands-on and always practical. Our goal is to leave clients with systems and processes they can easily maintain long after we finish the project. We are delighted to have with us today as our guest, Jean Detroyer, an internationally recognized thought leader in international expansion and cross-cultural business. After 17 years of marketing and management in consumer products for global companies, including Mobile and the Van Leer Group, Gene launched several entrepreneurial ventures, and he later sold the companies he created. For the past eight years, Gene has taught entrepreneurship and strategy at the New York campus of the European School of Economics, as well as at the Paris campus of the Weller International Business School. In addition to teaching, Gene now also advises foreign companies to help them bring their products to the U.S. He holds an MBA from Columbia Business School and a bachelor's degree from John Hopkins University. Today, we'll talk with Gene about why such a huge percentage of cross-border deals fail to reach their financial goals and how to help companies improve those odds. Gene, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Doris. This is a real pleasure. I enjoy relating my experiences. I, I look forward to this, this opportunity very much. I had the good fortune to hear you present last year, and I was absolutely dumbfounded. The statistic that you gave in that presentation, some 70% of cross-border deals fail because of cultural issues. And I think that's just astounding because the amount of money that's at stake in these deals is huge. Where does that number come from, and do you think that's the right number? Well, there's different research on it, and the lowest number I've seen is somewhere north of 50% of these deals fail, and depending on the study you look at, it goes up to 70%. In fact, Siemens has done internal studies, and they find that even internally, when they're working across borders within their company, they'll have problems with as much as 50% of the projects that go on, and they've implemented their own programming so their people can work together. But this is this is a very common issue, and we can find several examples of the silly, and I, I use the word carefully, though, the silly things, mistakes that people make when they're working cross-border, and just either a lack of understanding or a lack of desire to understand the people on the other side of the desk. How about a couple of those examples? I bet those would be interesting for our listeners. Well, you know, two come to mind. The first one is with Target. Oh, in Canada, that was an absolute fiasco. Yes, absolute fiasco. In fact, Target said, hey, you know, we can be successful in Canada. We want to expand our business. We're successful here in the United States. Let's go buy a chain in Canada, which they did. They spent a billion dollars doing it. And then they went ahead and lost another $2 billion trying to execute and then eventually pulled out. But the really amazing thing to me about this is Target is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
Yeah, close to the Canadian border, even. 292 miles from the Canadian border, all right? So you would think that there would be a sensitivity, an understanding of what goes on in Canada. And they made mistake after mistake. They made, And essentially what they tried to do was copy and paste their U.S. business into Canada. And to give you the most simple example, and they get more complex, but to give you the most simple example of a mistake they made is with milk. I mean, what, you know, how can you screw up selling milk? Well, in the United States, we sell milk in containers. You know, cardboard containers or plastic containers, quarts or gallons or whatever. So that's what they decided to sell in Canada. But in Canada, they don't sell. The people don't buy milk in containers. They buy them in plastic pouches. Uh-huh. it three pouches to a box. They take it home. They have a holder, and they use it there. How, how can you miss this? How can you miss this? It's just a, you would think it would be very basic. Now, certainly, the Canadian people who were working there were telling Target these things, and Target just, well, you know, that's not the way we do it. Do you think they thought that they single-handedly, because maybe there was a certain egotism of we are Target, we are American, and eventually, if we just shoulder through this, they'll come around to understand the advantages of how we do it? Well, before I give you the second example, I'll go to Walmart. And Walmart famously stepped into Germany many years ago and failed miserably. And essentially what they did was try to copy and paste the Walmart of the United States into Germany. And it just didn't work. They had their greeters and the Germans kind of looked askew <laughs> at their greeters. And, it didn't work and, and they finally pulled out. But what they did when they pulled out is they established a person who was president of, I'll, I'll call it president of culture, president mm-hmm. of looking at the different countries they go in and determining what the differences were. Because Walmart, their strength is in their distribution system and adapting their distribution system to whatever the local environment is. They understood that at the retail store, they had to be sensitive to whatever country it was. And they, now they've turned out to be successful in Japan, successful in China, very successful in Mexico and yeah, parts of Latin America. They bought a chain in South Africa. They're successful in the UK, and they're thinking of going into France. And when they do these things, they're not going to say, okay, we're going to do it like we do it in Bentonville, Arkansas. When they go into France, they're going to look at France and say, what do we have to do here? Our strength is getting products to the consumer. What we have to do is adopt our marketing and our products to that consumer. And Target didn't do that. They didn't think that way. You know, and my second Target example is with camouflage clothing. Now, camouflage clothing is very popular in the United States. So they stocked their stores with camouflage clothing just like they did in the United States. Well, in Canada, nobody wears camouflage clothing, and it didn't sell. And they not only didn't do their homework going in, they refused to make adjustments. And the results was their CEO got fired. He resigned, essentially got fired. They lost $3 billion. They pulled out. It was quite a disaster. 
The other example, which I found very interesting, was with lumber liquidators. Lumber I had heard this one. Lumber liquidators is a, a big box store, an outlet store for wood flooring and for wood walls and things like that. Oh, and okay. very big and very successful. They went to China to have their product made. Now, one of the things that you have to do to import wood products in the United States is that you can't have formaldehyde in it. Formaldehyde is often used to kill bugs and things like that in the wood, but you're not allowed to have it in it when you import it into the United States, and the product has to be certified that it's formaldehyde-free. Well, they went to China, and they had three manufacturers in China, and they were bringing product into the United States. It was certified, had the labels on it, all the right labels, formaldehyde-free. They sold lots and lots of it. And then it starts turning up that this product that they sold not only wasn't formaldehyde-free, it was many times, many, many times beyond the acceptable level. And, it, and it's sitting in people's houses on their floors, oh, no. on their walls. And as a result, uh, they were getting sued. They had to go in, rip it out, fix it all, and it almost destroyed the company. Now, what they didn't understand when the reporters went and asked the Chinese companies about the formaldehyde, they said, well, of course there was formaldehyde in it. So, you know, you say to yourself, well, how can this happen? Well, I've talked to a, a number of people who've done business in China and, and from both sides. And they said, well, you sit down with the Chinese manufacturer. You say, okay, we need this kind of wood, this kind of flooring. We need so much of it, and it has to be formaldehyde-free. And the Chinese guy says, okay. That'll be $100 or $1,000 or whatever the number is. Let's say $100 a ton. And Lumber Liquidator says, well, that's too much. We have to get that price down. And right. the Chinese guy says, okay, we can get that price down. And you start negotiating. And you get that price down to 88 And the Lumber Liquidator guy says, great, 88 is the number we're looking for. You shake hands, you got a deal. Okay. Yeah, but, I know where but, this is going. Yeah, but what the lumber liquidator guy doesn't understand is that once you came off that initial specification to start negotiating costs, it was assumptive that you're negotiating the specs as well. And Chinese manufacturers, assuming across the table, you very well know it. Wink, wink. Yes, we'll put the stamp on the product that says formaldehyde-free, but of course we have to put formaldehyde in it, and we can't give you the process to take the formaldehyde out. And again, a lack of understanding of how business is done. Now, many people say, well, that's terribly unethical. But it's not unethical if you understand that's the rules, that's the ethics. You know, we've talked about a couple of the spectacular cross-cultural disconnects with some very large corporations. I'm reminded, though, how similar some of these issues are when bridging cultural gaps between countries. For example, I thought of the similarities in the cross-cultural disconnects between the EU and Greece. The ongoing dispute in Europe, which I have a feeling is going to go on for quite a while longer, between the Northern Europeans' expectations of what it means to implement reform versus the Greeks in particular. The same kind of thing. Well, yeah, it's very, I mean, it's very similar. If, if you look under the Greek crisis, and everybody talks about the austerity and they waste money and 
and that's not really the issue there. The issue is their tax compliance. Yeah. I think their tax compliance is only about 40 or 45%. But I do know that if they had a typical tax compliance rate like Germany does, or even France and the other northern European countries, they wouldn't have a crisis at all. They could spend all the money they want. Yeah. But uh, what it is, is there's a very deep-rooted culture in Greece that just says, that's not how we do it here. That's exactly right. I mean, they have a funny law in, in Athens. Well, I only, it may be in all of Greece, but I know it's in Athens because of my traveling, that if there's property tax on a building, you don't pay property tax until you finish the first floor of the building. So you build the building. You finish the second floor, the third floor, the fourth floor, the fifth floor. And you don't really ever finish the first floor. <laughs> and, if you, and, and if you drive around Athens, you'll see all these buildings and you'll scratch your head and you'll ask yourself, how come that first floor is not finished? The building looks just fine. Because everybody knows that's one everybody of the ways. Everybody knows that's the way you do it. So, and I'm sure they'd think you were dumb if you came in and finished off the first floor and started course. paying taxes. Why, why would you do that? Why would no. you do that? Right. But the Germans, I mean, here's not just a company, here's an entire country and multiple countries who don't seem to get that there's this disconnect, or maybe they do, but they don't want to see it. And I'm not sure, I'm interested to hear what your perspective is on that, just in terms of cultural differences. Well, there's, <laughs> I mean, certainly there's a huge cultural difference between Germany and Greece. I once sat in a seminar, and it wasn't Greece that there was talked about. It said the whole world is broken up into two pieces, which, of course, it's not. You're either a German or you're a Turk. Germans, all this planning, <laughs> making sure everything is right. And Turks, everything from the seat of the pants and reacting to everything. But there was an interesting study. I'd like to be able to think of the source of it, but I teach it in class. I think it's a McKinsey study where, among other things, a poll was taken in various countries in Europe on what countries are the most trustworthy and what countries are the least trustworthy. And the countries that were polled were UK, France, Germany, Czech Republic, Greece, Italy, Spain, Portugal, I think. In every case, the most trustworthy country as polled in the various countries was Germany. The least trustworthy country as polled in the various countries, was Greece, except the polling in Greece was the term they thought was the most trustworthy country, and Germany was the least trustworthy country. But this was taken before the, this latest financial crisis. Right. So the evidence is there, and I uh, guess the larger question is, and what I do is mostly help smaller and mid-sized companies if Germany, the whole country of Germany, can make such a catastrophic miscalculation, somehow convince themselves it's going to change and then act surprised over and over again when it doesn't change, or a company as large and sophisticated as Target can fail, what should small businesses be doing? How can they avoid some of these major, major disconnects? I think, think those are two good examples. And I think in both cases, what happens, and I should qualify Germany, because Germany is one of the most successful exporting countries in the world. Absolutely. It's based on its size, measured per capita or percent of GDP. It's probably the most successful exporting country in the world. And they do it very well. 
Yes, they do. Uh, and, and they go about it in a very understanding way. But I think what happens is that as whether it's companies or countries get involved in this, what they fail to do is first understand their own culture understand how they do things and why they do things. Until you understand that, you can't understand what anybody else does. If you don't understand, you know, what's behind your decision-making, you'll just assume that you're doing it the right way and everybody else is doing it the wrong way. Absolutely. It it depends on your perspective, doesn't it? That's right. I don't think it's rose. Rose Rose-colored glasses, you've got to put a different colored glasses. You have to understand, just like lumber liquidators, if they're going to negotiate something in China, you can't assume that the negotiation is going to go your way. It's not. It's, it's a whole different playing field. you got to understand the other guy's playing field if you want him to do something. And I think that's a very common mistake. Now, you salt with the small and mid-market companies. The biggest guys are doing, for the most part, very, very well at international. Yeah, they um, are. Top 100. Most of their revenues are outside of the United States and are growing. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that the S&P 500's revenue, like well over 50%, comes yeah. from outside the U.S. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't, I, I haven't seen that statistic, but it doesn't surprise me at all. It doesn't surprise me at all. The smaller companies, they have had some success, and they're mostly opportunistic. Okay. Somebody calls them up from a different country and says, hey, we'd like your product. Uh, or I, their cousin works someplace else or is from a different country and can sell it. And that goes in, in various directions. And they are flexible enough that they can oftentimes react to that. Now, it doesn't present an opportunity to do a lot of business, but it presents an opportunity to do some business. And maybe in the long run, it might even hurt them because it turned out to be so easy. Huh. It's these middle-sized companies that are really having difficulty because they built in some structure, they have found their way to do it, and they don't have enough, what should I say, flexibility to learn and understand that there's different ways of doing things. And the first thing that they have to do, and somebody just the other day asked me, what if you had one measure to determine if a company was ready to go international, I would say that one measure is they have to be willing to assign someone full-time for the international business. Yeah. It can't be a sideline. You, right. you can say the vice president of sales is responsible, you know, the sales manager, whoever it is, and they could go to this course or that course or learn this or that, but the moment they're behind their desk in the office, the domestic issues are going to pull them away from the international issues. And the international issues, they take time to develop. You have to build relationships. You have to understand the various countries you're going into. You have to understand the products. You have to understand the culture. And you can't do it as a sideline. It's not a hobby. Right. It's an investment in in a strategic initiative for your company. It's not an afterthought. And it's not, you know, and you use a very good word there. It's an investment. It's not a cost. It's an investment. It's an investment just like you're buying a machine, putting it on the floor that's going to produce product. You know, this study that we did was uh, more anecdotal than a well-run study. But we asked small and medium-sized companies, you know, how much would you invest today to get $100,000 bottom line new contribution year after year after year after year after year forever? 
And we got numbers, the mid-range of the numbers, anywhere from 300000 to $500,000. And that's not unreasonable. That's a 20% return on assets or investment to about a 30 or 35% return on investment. I think we'd all be happy with something like that. Then yep. we ask them, if you went international, when do you expect to break even? And they say, in a year or less. <laughs> Those things just don't go together. It should be the other way around. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the enormous cross-cultural challenges that are presented by the growing middle-class consumers in some of these large emerging markets like Turkey, Indonesia, Nigeria. Do you think businesses should wait and see with these markets or skip them altogether because of the difficulties or just jump in with both feet? Okay, there's so much business out there in the world. So much business. If we look at what drives this global phenomenon, this global business, the growth in these countries, and we're not just talking about China and Brazil, and soon we'll be talking a whole lot more about India. In five or seven years, we're going to be talking about Africa. We're looking at a middle class that's going to grow by 2 billion people in 15 years. The middle Astounding. Class, yes, and middle class, wherever it is, is what drives the economies. All right. They're the ones who buy cars and TVs and houses and cell phones and computers and go on Skype. They're the ones who spend 100% of their money and maybe more. Certainly the ones at the lowest level spend 100% of their money, but it's mostly on food and shelter. Right. The ones at the top only spend about 30% of their money. The rest is investment in buying stocks. They buy a house, but it's not a new house. They buy it from somebody, and that doesn't add coverage. So it's, it's this middle class that's so important. And if we look at the United States, in the next 15 years, the United States middle class is going to get smaller. In North America, it's going to drop by about 4%. It's not growing. And that's not an economic reasons and not political reasons and not headlines in the paper. It's simple demographics. These baby boomers, like me, we're getting older. We're retiring, and unfortunately, you know, in the next 15 years, a few of us might die. And we're not being replaced at the same rate. If we look at Europe, it's a little different situation. They have a little better safety net for retirees, but they still have a baby boomer issue. They Europe, sure do. Europe is going to grow. Their middle class is going to grow about 4 or 5% at best. Now, but a lot of that's concentrated in some of the more developing markets, less so in, for example, Sweden or yes. Norway, where the birth rates are extremely low. Yeah, yeah. You know, more places like Romania and Slovakia. Eastern Europe, where they're starting to enjoy the fruits of being connected to Europe rather than the Soviet Union. Yeah, you're going to see a little bit of that. But in the rest of the world, it's booming. And somebody's going to say to you, well, yeah, but. Their middle class isn't making as much money as our middle class. Well, the fact is that they're not, and they won't. But they don't have to, because we spend twenty or thirty thousand dollars for a car here, but in India they're going to spend seven or eight or nine thousand dollars for a car. Right. It's scaled appropriately. That's right. It's the purchasing power parity that's that's really important. Even if you look at the variations in going something as simple as going to the movies, we spend $15 going to the movie here. If we took 
the exchange rate, you would say, well, they're going to spend in, in their currency the equivalent of 10 or $15 to go to the movie, but it doesn't work that way. They're spending the equivalent of 4 or $5 to go to the movie. So that argument doesn't stand on its own either. Business is going to be outside the United States. If a small or medium-sized company wants to grow, they got to go outside. There's, there's just no doubt about it. And to do that, they have to understand the people. We have to learn our culture and why we do things. And once we start learning how silly that is, then we can start looking at the other people. And when I teach, I always ask my students, and by the way, now I've been teaching for seven or eight years, all my students are international students. And when we get to this kind of topic, one of the things I always ask them, I say, how come in Europe you drive your car on one side of the street, but in the UK, you drive it in the other. What's the reason? And they all kind of look dumbfounded, <laughs> right? I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, somebody can come up with ultimate reasons and why it goes back. But the fact is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you drive on the right side. It doesn't matter whether you drive on the left side. What matters is that you're all driving on the same side. We always talk about the Brits driving on the wrong side of the road. The and wrong side. It's yeah. not the wrong side. It's a it, different side. Exactly. And that's a perfect example. Exactly what you said. Driving on the wrong side of the road. No, it's not the wrong side. You know what the wrong side is? Is if you went over there and tried <laughs> to drive on the right side. Then it's the wrong <laughs> That'd be side. Bad. You know, then it's the wrong side. It's just different, you know. And most of our culture has developed this way so we could exist, so right. we can get on with life and not worry about how to do things. Our brains would explode if we had to think about every single thing that we had to do. And if, as we look at these this cultural phenomena, these different ways of doing things, and we can even break it into how people behave, but also there's a whole different set of what we might call business culture. Right. We find out that there's no particular right or wrong way. It's just different. Right. It's that simple. And if you're going to play in the other guy's ballpark, you've got to understand the other guy's rules. I think this is where having a consultant or some sort of facilitated training can really be helpful. You know, it, it's funny that on the one hand, such a high percentage of cross-border transactions fail to meet expectations, and there's a lot of money at stake here. And yet, at the same time, serious efforts at cross-cultural training or cultural immersion. So many businesses, I've suggested it for a number of clients, and they just are like, oh, that's all fluffy. That's foo-foo. We don't do that. Why would we do that? That's a huge issue in the United States, fluffy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'll tell you another story I think you'll spark to it. I was talking with a, a woman from Hong Kong, and she's uh, chairman of a boutique investment bank and has offices in Hong Kong and here in New York. 60 years old. She's about four foot 11, but a real dynamo. And she gave a speech after the speech. There was a little networking session. I sat down with her and we had a drink and we're talking. And we got around to talking about doing business. And she says, you know, I can tell when somebody comes to do business with me and all they've done is read the etiquette book. They hand me the business card the right way and they do all the right things in terms of etiquette. She said, but I know that they're not really interested in me. And they're not really interested in how we do business here. They just want to follow the guidelines. 
she said, but oftentimes we'll come across somebody from the United States and they make some mistakes. But despite the fact that they make some mistakes, I know that they're trying. And I know that they're really interested in doing business here. They're interested in me. They're interested in my company. They're interested in my people. She says, we'll ultimately end up doing business with those people. We won't do business with those people who have obviously just read the etiquette. Viewed as superficial, I think, in a yeah. lot, lot of cultures. Yeah. One of our advisors on our board of advisors, one of the gentlemen on it, was responsible for the expansion of a major, major company to Eastern Europe and Turkey. And he was telling the story in Turkey. He was trying to do a deal with a family company in Turkey. And about 70 or 80% of the companies are family companies in Turkey. And he went, and if you've ever dealt with the Turks, they're very hospitable. They're just delightful people. Yes, they are. He went to the first meeting, and we had a very good meeting, and there's the three sons who were there who I'm talking to, and over in the corner is the patriarch, the father, and the father doesn't say anything. He said we had a nice meeting, and that night we went out to dinner and had a wonderful dinner, and a couple of days later we had another meeting. I left, I came back, and we had another meeting. We weren't really accomplishing anything. We were just having these meetings. And he said, one day I'm in Istanbul and I go to the uh, bazaar and I see one of the little booths selling the, I guess I would call them prayer beads. These little beads on a chain that you often see in the Middle East and Greece, the the men Uh kind of roll in their hands. I noticed in all these meetings that the father, who was sitting kind of off the table in the back during all the meetings, he was doing this. So I bought one. He said, I think it cost me. $2. $2. And I went to our next meeting, and at our next meeting before we start, I said, just a minute, I've got a question here. And I took out these prayer beads, and I said, can you tell me about these? What are these for? And at that moment, the father moved to the table, oh. told them all about the prayer beads, and guess what? They closed the deal. Because you went outside the traditional American box of the meeting. Exactly, and you showed interest in them. Now, this isn't going to work in every culture. It worked in that one. But it's it's that extra step. It's opening up. It's trying to understand that makes it successful. Well, listen, I think we're about out of time. Gene, I just want to thank you again for being with us today. Yeah, really, I, I enjoy this. I really enjoy this. I'd love to hear your thoughts about some of the academic models that are out there to help frame cross-cultural issues. Gene, it's very difficult, in my experience, to help companies see the cultural issues unless they're already open to seeing them. Do you think any of the cross-cultural models that you teach would be helpful at all? I seem to recall that there was one that you liked. I think it was called the Lewis model. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Richard Lewis. It's my favorite model. And the most famous model, I think, is the Hofstad model. But the Hofstad model is very binary in its elements. But the Lewis model is very nuanced. It basically has an overall categorization of three types of cultures. Reactive, which is largely the Asian cultures. Direct culture, which is largely the North American and Western Europe cultures. And the multi act which is largely the rest of the world, the Southern European, African, and And South American culture. But he doesn't say you're one or the other. And he has this wonderful map. It's a triangle. Triangle. All right. 
Yeah, he maps it, and there's a gradation of culture, a gradation of colors showing which countries have which pieces of which culture. And if it's very uh, reactive, you might find Japan or China or South Korea there. But then you can move along the border of this triangle and get closer to the linear active, which is the you know, more direct, the U.S., the U.K., Canada. Canada. Or you can move along the other axis and get to the more multi-active. And so you start to understand that these are all made up of differences, lots of differences. And you can't learn these. They're impossible to learn. You can learn a culture of one country. You've got to go live there for a period of time. Okay. A year, maybe more. So there's not going to be any way you're going to learn many, many cultures. So you have to be open-minded to it. Now, what's really interesting when you look at his triangle, if you put a circle around in his triangle, what's in the lower left-hand corner, which has Western Europe and North America in it, in 1950s and early 1960s, that represented 95% of world commerce. In terms of our view here in the United States, for many, many years, we didn't have to pay a whole lot of attention on how to do things because we were all relatively close on our culture. Well, we had differences, relatively close. Now, if you take that today and you draw a circle around everything else, that's about 70% of world commerce. So this group that 40 years ago, 50 years ago, represented 95% of world commerce today, represents only about 30%, and it's not going up. That number is going to go down. So if you want to do business in this world, you better step outside. You know, it might be an interesting study to see if receptivity and success in exporting would be correlated. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point, and I certainly don't have the answers to that. But if we look at some of the most successful American companies worldwide, we find that their CEOs are not American. Walmart CEO is not American. Walmart right. has more stores outside the U.S. than they do inside the U.S. I think Coca-Cola has had the last three or four CEOs who have not been American. If we go to Silicon Valley, more than half of the CEOs, and granted there's a lot of startups there, more than half the CEOs in Silicon Valley are either Asian, Indian, Chinese, South Korean, Japanese, or they're from Russia. So there is this acceptance in some industries and some companies that you have to do it differently. Of course, resources to do that kind of thing don't always exist in the smaller and the medium-sized companies, nor the thought process, particularly in a founder company. Right. You know, where the founders is running it. Well, we've done it this way. And I mean, that that's a big transition just within the company when the founder has to leave. But there's also something interesting in the Lewis, Richard Lewis book, Fish Can't See Water, which I love the title. I do, uh, too. Even companies that have been successful internationally, when they run into crisis, they fall back onto their national culture. It's human nature, isn't it? Yeah, it's human nature. So, I mean, there's a lot of things going on, and the biggest thing that you have to do is be aware. You know, there's a lot of focus on how do you fill out the customs forms, and how do you find your HST code for exporting, and some of those kind of mechanical issues. But very little I've seen that focuses on culture. Yeah, there's some focus on export readiness, but it doesn't really get to the level of readiness that we're talking about. 
you know, and I've dealt a lot with the Department of Commerce, and I find those folks there just terrific to deal with. And they realize this as well. Part of the problem, they'll say, is we have our metrics that are measured. We have to do things that are measured. How many companies did we help fill right. out the forms? How many companies did we provide our gold key service to? But when we get down to, gee, can we help them with culture? It's very hard. That. Very hard. Even to the point of trade missions. When you talk to them about trade missions, what's their measure for trade missions? It's how many people went on the trade mission. It's not how much business was done. If they measured how much business was done, they'd have a huge problem. Because <laughs> there's not a whole lot of business done on trade missions. I think the services that they give, and I'll put trade missions aside because I have my own problems with trade missions, but I think the services they give are necessary services. They just can't get to that next step. But it's, I mean, it's just difficult. So therein is a real conundrum. Oh, yeah. Cultural issues are a huge part of the success or failure of an increasing number of business deals because the statistics pretty clearly show that more and more deals have cross-border implications. And that just plays right into exactly what you were saying, is that the axis is moving towards more cross-cultural kinds of business ventures. And yet, certainly in the U.S., it's not viewed as something that's very important. What are your thoughts on how we get, how do we bridge that gap? Yeah, I don't know, to tell you the truth. And if you looked at the data, let's take manufacturing, because everybody talks about manufacturing coming back here. And they say, well, you know, we're going to invent stuff and become more productive, and we're making all this progress. And yeah, that's true. But in this world of technology, whatever progress you make to make your plant more efficient, the other guy can make the very same progress. They don't have to go through making cars the way Henry Ford made them to the way we make them today. They can just make them the way we make them today. They don't have right. those steps. Right. And, you know, if you say, okay, well, we, we pay $20 in labor, but our machines are so much more efficient that eventually they'll be so efficient that it won't matter that that other guy is only paying $5 in labor. We will still be a better product and will be cheaper. Well, that other guy who's paying $5 in labor, can increase his wages to $10 in labor, get that same machine, and still make good products and still be cheaper. You know, I'm sitting at my desk, my computer here, and I have my cell phone here, and I have a light over my desk, and I don't think any of them are made in the United States, and they all work pretty well. Yeah, technology has become so porous and it's just moved so rapidly. It's a, it changes the ability, it, it sort of reduces the whole notion of fixed assets and transforms things into knowledge, which can be transferred anywhere yeah, you much know, that, more quickly. Absolutely, and I just wrote something yesterday on retail, and there was a discussion about urban outfitters. Urban outfitters is trying to renew their stores in such a way that the stores are a place to go to to interest customers in their products. So ultimately, their customers will become loyal, and ultimately, their customers will buy regularly online. Mm. I think that's the way that retail is going. It's the right way to go because those customers, first of all, loyal customers are your most profitable customers. 
Secondly, for everything that they buy online, it's more profitable than what they buy in the store. If that's the way technology is taking us, making that purchase more convenient, making that purchase faster, giving me more selection, that's where retail is going. And while Urban Outfitters are looking at it this way, I think they're going to be very successful. Is making their stores essentially, I, I, I hate to use the word showroom, but because they'll be selling stuff, but it's, it's a capture room to capture the customer. They don't care where the customer ultimately buys the product, as long as they buy it and buy it and buy it and buy it. Retailers are very slow to adopt to this. Yeah, I'm waiting for somebody to come up with the application that allows you to create your avatar with your measurements and preferences, and you can go into a virtual store and virtually try on items to see how it'll look on your particular figure. It's, uh, it's not, not far away. No, so I've, seen, I've seen betas on it. Wow. Well, it's going to be a game changer, yeah. I'm sure. Well, I think so. Any final words of wisdom, suggestions for mid-sized and smaller companies that are venturing outside the U.S.? Yeah, I think it's very worth repeating. As I said, if there's one measure that will tell you if you're ready to go international, it's that you're ready to hire somebody or assign somebody 100% of their time to the international business. If you're not ready to do that, stay home. Forget about it. <laughs> You're wasting your time and your money. They, those are pretty strong words, but I think you've seen a lot of successes and failures over your career, and you know what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and there's data to back that up, too. It's not just anecdotal. Well, listen, I think we're about out of time. I just wanted to say thank you again for being with us today. I, really I, I enjoy this. I really enjoy this. I hope our listeners have enjoyed learning a little more about how to improve cross-border transactions. You can listen to interviews with many of our other guests by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, on Google Play, Speak Kific, or on Global Radio YouTube channel, or by visiting our website at www.globalocityservices.com. Thanks again for listening today.